Cinderella, funny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome again to the Fringeworthy Podcast. As a special guest, we've asked Trav to join us. Thank you very much for letting me sit in on this. I've wanted to do this ever since I met you, Bruce, and John at Confusion back in January. And we really appreciate you coming because we always are looking for new inputs. At this point, we pretty much have gotten to know each other and what our points of view are, so it's great to have a fresh view on anything. I helped head up the Bureau 13D20 conversion project, and I've also worked on the Fringeworthy D20 conversion project. I also do an internet radio show on my own, which I'll plug right now. It's on www.dementiaradio, D-E-M-E-N-T-I-A-R-A-D-I-O, one word, dot org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. It's called the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association. It's sort of a comedy music show. I talk about role-playing a lot because I review certain publications that come out. I have reviewed the, the two games that I've worked on. Role-playing does come up a lot in my show, even though it's mainly about comedy music. As I said, I've worked for TriTech Games now for eight, nine years, I, I think. Yep, right at the very beginning of the uh, Bureau 13 D20 conversion, because that was the first one we did. Yes, it was quite a shock for me when Rich asked me to start heading things up, and I was like, excuse me? (laughs) You want me to do what? (laughs) What had happened there was we completed the initial production of the Bureau 13 D20 version based upon certain assumptions certain material that was in it and then Richard made a big radical change in the direction he wanted the D20 version to go at which point half of us had already just left and gone on to other projects and so he turned to you Trav and to say hey I need you to continue in this other direction and you did and you did an excellent job and we really appreciate thank all that you've done. I was more than a little shocked because you and Bruce and John you've known Rich a lot longer you certainly know more about the game and I was like, I'm a fan. I see him at the local conventions here in the Detroit area, and all of a sudden I'm now doing this. So it was quite a shock. It was a shot in the arm for me to be able to get into something that I was only just basically a fan. And I'm, I'm glad that it turned out the way it did. There were still things even that I saw that certainly surprised me in both Bureau 13 D20 and certainly Fringeworthy D20. Uh, Blix, I just want to take the opportunity right now when I first loaded the CD and saw your art, I was blown away. I oh. am very impressed. Well, thank I think, you. I think through the mailing list for Fringeworthy, I said, I just want to say that to you now, sir. That just incredible. 
Well, thank you. That, that's awesome. That's nice to hear. I, um, I've been doing artwork for, oh, God, a long, long time. And I've been playing Fringeworthy, God, 25 years. When I saw they were coming out with this new version, I just contacted Rich. Hey, I'd like to do artwork for the project. And he said, yeah, okay, sure. So I put some stuff together, and he liked it. And I said, uh, you think I could do the cover? And he was like, he said, yeah, sure. So I put the cover together. And then I started talking to Bruce and John, and I was like, Hey, we should do a podcast. And they were like, yeah, okay. That sounds like a good idea. I said, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no idea what he was in for. <laughs> like the spider to the fly. And, and here we are. We all started off as fans of Richard's books. It's just the fact that we stuck to it and developed the relationship with Richard through our enthusiasm and just sometimes through sheer longevity that we've become on the inside. So there's plenty of room on the inside for anybody who wants to get in on this. I started out gaming with Richard. I didn't ever saw a book until I was in the army before I saw the first book. <laughs> the, the first book I had from Rich's incursion, I believe. It's funny to talk about John because we, we basically grandfather John in, even though he's younger than most of us. Well, out of you, Bruce, John, and myself, the three of us, I sort of consider myself the young, impulsive kind of hothead because I just yeah. 41 last month. <laughs> well, that's your personality, too, so it works. Well, out. yeah, I'm kind of reining myself in because certainly on my own show, it it's not pod safe, and I'll leave it at that. There's no FCC, so. Uh, our show, however, is clean, so. Yeah, I so I am, <laughs> I'm respecting that, and I, I'm really trying to be... Uh, genteel and demure, relatively demure anyways, because you two have met me, so. Right. <laughs> and I had home court advantage, so I was kind of like, okay, you know, I'll just. <laughs> We're not too afraid of the subject matter. Is uh, is might be controversial, but we just don't want the particular words to oh, scare off anybody who might be interested in their son or daughter actually playing our game. I have a 16-year-old daughter myself. She didn't make it to the con, but I've talked about her, my daughter Michelle, and she games in the Saturday night D&D game that my buddy runs here. So, yeah, I mean, young blood in, in tabletopping is always a good thing because they have fresh ideas, the enthusiasm, and then mix it with our generation's experience. And you have a very potent combination for gaming. You want our games to continue. We have to get new blood. Yes, definitely. we're working on it. And Bruce and I are going to go to uh, Dragon Con and we're going to we're going to pimp this. We're going to treat every one of our players like rock stars. There we go. We're going to give them T-shirts. We're going to make sure that they have the, the comfy seat. Hi, everybody. Hey, Jay. Hey. Hello. Made it, finally. We were in doing the introduction, so Jay, would you introduce yourself? My name is uh, Jay Haley, and I'm from Spokane, Washington. Right now, I'm far from Spokane, Washington. You're actually near Richard, right? I'm in Dearborn, Michigan right now. Oh, heck, close to me. We have a special guest with us, uh, Jay Halley, who recently started a Fringeworthy campaign. We invited him this week to discuss what he did in it and the decisions he made and hopefully some wisdom he might have gained from it. But before we start, uh, Jay, would you uh, introduce yourself as to how you got into Fringeworthy? My name is Jay Haley. I currently live in Spokane, although that's not where I'm sitting right now. I first got into TriTac Game. In 1983, when we bought an early version of Stalking the Night Fantastic, and we uh, played that, and over time, uh, I just got curious one day and said, what's this Fringeworthy thing all about? When I picked it up, I saw that I had been doing things like Fringeworthy, but not as good, all along in my gaming career. 
me, and I went, ooh, this is neat, and I started plugging away at doing a Fringeworthy game. Well, cool. So you recently decided to have a campaign, uh, start your very first Fringeworthy campaign, and you got the book. Now, did you start playing your campaign before you got a player, or did you do it afterwards? I talked with my player. I was playing a one-on-one game, so I had one player. I had been reading Fringeworthy, and I'd been talking about it, thinking about it. I talked to my players, said, hey, I got this new thing. Let's let's try this out. And he said, oh, okay. That's when I started working on my campaign. Most of our listeners know how Fringeworthy is put together, but some don't. Some are listening to this because they're just interested in interdimensional explorations. When we talk about what kinds of changes you might have made, could you please also include what was the book standard? When you say, well, this is the way it was in the book, and but this is what I decided to do and why. Okay. Why don't you tell us how your game started? Was it going to be the very early game, or was um, it going to be further along in the exploration? I wanted to start my campaign early on in the discovery of the fringe paths. I thought that that was a fascinating area how the world reacted to finding interdimensional portals on the Earth, how people would react to that. And so I wanted to invite my player to do some world building with me in terms of trying to plot out how people would react to finding this information and what sort of things they'd do in response to it. After a little bit of talking, we started a metagame, differently from the main book in that he took the role of certain nations and I took the role of certain nations. And we played a metagame where they attempted to jockey for control and influence over these gateways to the French paths. So you actually played the political backdrop for the game as an actual play sessions. We attempted that, but unfortunately it did break down in terms of a political discussion, frankly. I had opponent nations act like antagonists in the game. They were self-centered. They were interested mainly in getting control or access to the portals. And my friend was offended by this and felt in many cases I was not acting properly in character. Thought you weren't acting as the country would act? Correct. Okay. And so eventually I had to back off that part of that metagame and try to segue into a setup that was closer to what we find in the book so that we could focus more on the personal scale of PCs going through the portals. Going back to your metagame, your player felt he was an expert on on the political scene. Is that it? We both feel that we had a certain amount of knowledge, but what we know kind of conflicted with each other. Australia, as a for instance, we wanted to set up a base in Australia for ease of access to Antarctica and uh, White Island, where the original portal is discovered. However, Australia, despite being a United States ally, said, well, sure, but we want somebody on the command staff. And we want access, and we want to be able to have a little bit of control over who comes and goes. My friend felt that that was inappropriate since it was an American mission that secured the portal. In Australia, there was an American base you were trying to set up in it. Originally, we called it an international effort. However, my player playing the uh, military commander of the Fringeworthy Project elbowed his way in and took it over from the inside. And he was a patriotic American, which means he wanted to guard main access for America. Then when I had Australia and New Zealand both say, well, sure, but we get somebody on the seat next to the general, that turned Uh, into a fight. I'm sorry it didn't work out because it sounds fascinating to me. Right. I I have a question. Certainly. Do you think he was offended that you took that position? Or do you think he generally thought that Australia would never do something like that? A mixture of both. 
since he felt it was out of character for Australia to act that way. Right. He felt that it was inappropriate for me to have Australia take that position because Australia would never act that way. You see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It that, seems to me that these are extreme circumstances. We're not talking about finding maybe gold or something like that. We're talking about finding the most incredible thing ever. It just seems to me that traditional lines could break down. I mean, you know, people or countries or political parties could change radically given the right circumstances. And he just wasn't uh, buying that or. My reading of history suggests that nation states, when faced with access to a uh, resource, can act like spoiled children especially if situation is close and, and intense. If it's an all-or-nothing situation where days count, you tend to get into pe- people acting in extreme ways. Right. There were also other attitudes that my friend had about the relationship between America and Australia that I did not know going into it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so he felt that Australia would not uh, resist the United States so much or attempt a power play of its own against the United States so much since the United States is uh, supposedly the obviously superior partner. This is more of a way for me to painfully and by trial and error gain insight into my friend's view of the world and world politics. Before we get too much further, though, you guys are still friends, right? Yes, yes. So, we, uh, so we want to make sure there's a disclaimer that, that you're not trying to uh, make him out to be the bad guy. It's just right. that you guys saw things differently. Frisbee does not break up best friend forever relationships. No. <laughs> definitely for the record, you're definitely not trying to put him down. Absolutely not. I'm not entirely certain that my cynical view of politics is necessarily any more accurate than his. Right. I just want to put that out there just in case he's listening to this and you guys are, are still friends and you want to remain that way. I just want to make sure that it was clear that you're not trying to put him down. If I'm going to run this sort of metagame again, I would make up new countries. I would have this happening on a planet with humans on it, but with different nation states so that we wouldn't have any pre-existing baggage, right. pre-existing right. belief systems engaged in those nations. Well, let me ask you a question here, Jay. And- you said this was a metagame. Did you use any kind of a negotiation mechanic to try to resolve these, or was it just you and him arguing verbally? It was just me and him arguing verbally. Although yeah. now that you mention it, I think a die roll for high or low probably would have resolved a lot of those arguments. It's something that we've noticed in a number of games that we've played. Sometimes people forget there actually are some mechanics for negotiation in various cases. Some people consider theirs to be superior to others, but the fact is that once they're there, it's really helpful sometimes to use that when you get to an impasse. And I remember during this, all this, because Jay was actually posting blow by blow on the fringe with the uh, Yahoo group. The impression I got was that your player's character, the general, if, if he had the choice, would have made the fringe a black project for the United States if he could. He definitely was running as a gung-ho American patriot, that's for sure. Yes, that was a character he wound up running at the time. He developed that on the fly as we went along. I kind of went with it because the way my player plays is he gets characters kind of blooming fully formed in his head. And it's usually it's more fun when we chase them down and go where they go. It kind of sucks the life out of a character when you take an inspiration like that and say, no, but you have to change this, that, and the other thing. That's perfectly fine. You know, we like bigger than life characters and fringeworthy. All characters should be bigger than life. Eventually, though, you did get onto the fringe pass. How did you set up your exploration teams? What General Washburn did 
the character, he sent the initial crystal out with a military escort and started screening the world's military. This was something where he had to cooperate with the international community. They took over an abandoned base in New York. It's currently a national park. Then we did some math about how many people they'd be able to screen if they brought people in by boat, plane, and, and bus, and how many people they would get. And then I made up some random characters, and he took the ones that he liked. He felt like he had a kind of an empathy with, and we formed them into teams. My understanding is, in the out-of-the-box fringeworthy game, in the stock model fringeworthy game, the players are troubleshooters. They go on to the fringe path to resolve problems. That the people actually exploring are teams that go prior to them and then discover things that they need, an action team, a team of player characters to resolve. I didn't set it up that way. I set it up so that our first squad was the first in team. They were the people who stuck their foot through the gate to see what, what was on the other side. So you did a first contact campaign, basically? Basically, yes. Okay, all right. That is the default out-of-the-box thing. The only difference that we make is we say that some team whose job is to go out and run wind-ups and such through the portals just to see which portals are active, which ones aren't, and any initial readings they can get off of it. And then they bring that back to, to Hatsumi Base, and then that's given to those initial teams. So you're still essentially right. It's a first contact. There is a first team that goes ahead, but their actions are very, very minimal because it's very dangerous to do that. If you're not careful, you get sucked into problem portals and all kinds of stuff. I like that because the most obvious problem portals would initially be found without people having to die in order to realize there was a problem portal there. Because if it's going to grab something and suck it through, then it's going to grab a wind-up and suck it through, or it's going to grab a camera on a spinning wheel or whatever device you used in order to take pictures and readings, rather than it being a person getting yanked through and everyone going, pray, pray he comes back. My group, as, as many years as we've played Friends Worthy, we've done some really early campaign stuff, but we've never done like the very beginning. After listening to Jay's, or well, reading Jay's posts, one day I really want to do that. I really want to do right out of the box, maybe the very second team to go through, the very first other team to go through. I would love to do a campaign like that sometime. That brings up two comments that I did in my game deliberately that uh, Bruce was talking about. I don't have the portals going to any place immediately inimical. I don't have insta-kill portals because I don't think that makes a very good story. So I had it that the Termelarn set the portals only to go to places where Termelarn could walk through and survive. That's the way it's supposed to be, Jay. It's, it's only when it's a problem portal where the portal's malfunctioning that we have these issues where the portals are like you know a mile up in the sky or they yank you through, heat up your body temperature by 30 degrees and stuff like that. They're not supposed and to do that. It's my understanding that those are supposed to be exceptionally rare, right? They I mean, are not... indeed, yes. Which is why we recommended that every portal except the Hatsumi base one be locked down initially, and the GM decides when that portal becomes active. Okay. I did note that the positions of the other portals, they were specified, but not really carefully. So what I did on mine was I went through and started placing portals on my prime Earth. And I differentiate it from mine, even though I use several of the names and characters in common, because I had things going a little bit differently. And that goes back to plotting out the prehistory of the game and uh, w just when things happened and why. Uh, you still had Sayuri 
Weelai and Gordon as part of the French Reed team, but they were like, you know, kept off to the side of if I'm not correct. Uh, since they were civilians, they were early among the people discovered as Sayuri went from Antarctica to the UN to make her announcement of the finding of the portal. So she discovered the people, plus two other PCs that Dennis rolled up and said, okay, you've got to come with us. You can make this thing work. Well, then when General Washburn got his hands on it, he really sidelined what we were calling the first team, the first group of people discovered to be fringeworthy because they weren't military, and General Washburn, being a gung-ho type, did not trust them. Was there ever a first mission then, as in the book? The book actually had a first mission where they went and they're going to go meet Schmert and invite him to come back to Earth Prime. Of course, they find out that he's not there. My player kind of skipped over the whole point where Sayuri went and met somebody on the fringe paths, he never really retained that that had happened. So any attempt to follow up on that, he didn't plan for because he didn't retain that part of the story. After I mentioned it a couple of times and he passed it off, I kind of went, okay, and followed him where he was going. Okay, so he marginalized it. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. He wanted to have his first team, the, the team he rolled up, and that's okay. Hey, do you think that was uh, Jim, like him playing General Washburn, just saying, oh, yeah, we don't need to pay attention to that. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Or do you think that was just him as a player choosing not to act on that? I couldn't really say. I think there's a kind of a mix of the player choosing not to act on it and perhaps me as the GM not communicating the whole scene clearly enough. So you had your guys, the first team. It was a military team. So where did they go explore? The first thing they did was they started going through the prime platform portals. Mm -hmm. I set where each of the other portals was. I did not have them all locked down, as in out of the box. I had them actually being mostly open. And so they went through and had some interesting interactions with people, discovering that there were other portals on Earth and that there was more access to the platform. One of the portals on the prime platform went to a game reserve in Kenya, and the Kenyan Wildlife Service kind of met them at, on their second trip through that gate and said, oh, cool, we have a portal too now. And then we went around the circle in a clockwise direction. He was very orderly about it, going to each portal to figure out where they came out. I put together a wiki of my game. Were all eight, therefore, active portals? There's nine of them on that platform. Uh, actually, there's ten. There's eight small rings, and there's two large ones. Yes, all were uh, active. The large ring goes to Hatsumi Base. The other large ring goes to the fringe path up to the alternate platform. And then we had eight portals to right. various places on Earth. So you had a super big portal going to Hatsumi Base? Yes. Oh, okay. Was there a particular reason for that? No, I just thought that was the way it was supposed to be. Okay. Once you had the world where they all could get onto the fringe paths in all these different countries, uh, how did that change the dynamics? Did you get any competing organizations saying, well, now that we've got a portal in our country, we'll just go ahead and run our own Fringeworthy program? I was starting to set up like that. Two of the portals went to enclosed areas. The PCs did not explore any further. So one of the Ural Mountains, no, the Baikonur Mountains in Russia, they went in and said, huh, nice dark cave. Too bad we can't stay. And went back through. There was another one like that in Australia and another one like that at Mount Ararat. They went through and we had an interesting technical discussion about how you might be able to locate yourself if you were underground. 
We had a long discussion of that on the group. You know, various things like the local magnetic field intensity to, size, to using seismic charges. I think what he actually did was to dangerously use up the breathable air inside the Baikonur and the Mount Ararat facility by putting in gasoline-fired generators and running an extremely long-wave radio receiver. Submarines used to use those for communication. The signals could penetrate quite a great distance. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Did they find them? Did they you know, dig down and open up the caverns and, and start using those portals? No, we actually never progressed that far. Because huh. what, what I started doing next was I started building up my nodes. Okay, I started doing world building on the other nodes that were accessible in this particular fringe path area. In order to keep myself from having to make up an infinite number of worlds, which would have been really hard, I imagined that it was locked at so many spaces to the left and so many spaces to the right. And I wound up having 12 nodes that I had to make up. So I started making up the new nodes, and we started discussing the game. That's about when he said, oh, wait, alternate worlds? I don't like those. And so we had to reset the game and go do something else. Controlling where the fringeworthy people go to is one of the biggest challenges for a fringeworthy GM. And that's one of the reasons why, again, we advocated locking down all the portals and deciding which of the portals were going to be active initially and then setting security levels on the other ones to say, okay, as time goes on, we find higher level crystals. We can go and start opening more portals on this platform, therefore making the platform to a certain extent evergreen. I agree with that. I made up a couple of adventures where the PCs would walk out in the middle of somebody else's story and wind up hooked into their story almost immediately. The problem with that is it starts to strain credibility after the second time. If you walk out of a portal and there's somebody running and screaming for help once, maybe. But twice? Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. You need a plot that comes onto the fringe pass. It comes and gets the characters. They need to be able to know that there's something that needs resolving on that platform over there. And that is one of the problems about playing the very, very early game because, again, you're talking first contact. You you walk through the portal. It's the first time they ever saw the Fringeworthy. When you get toward the middle game where people, other teams have also been out interacting with people and, and setting up contacts with local indigenous people, then all of a sudden one of those local indigenous people can say to a Fringeworthy, hey, you know, w- there's this problem. Something's happening over here. and Could you help with that? And then they come back to you and say, hey, we've got a, a mission for you. Go do this. And you are jumping into the middle of a situation that's just happening because someone had a chance to tell you about it. A long time ago when we played our earlier gaming, you know, 20 years ago we used to just run rampant through the french paths and basically every portal was just some movie or book or 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 some game system that we played before but as we matured in our gameplay we got to the point where it was dangerous to walk into a world that had not been explored by a team that was geared towards first contact if you just randomly walked into a world it could be exceptionally dangerous and and i'm not talking about just because they were mellow there it's that you're the stranger and you don't know what's going on and what you're wandering into you have no clue you literally took your character's life into his own hands every time you walked into a portal that you were not familiar with or you weren't sent there with some prior information why would they go through a portal a second time eventually the characters would start like you know that's dangerous a guy could get seriously killed doing that why am i going there again right well 
that's what kept people from just going anywhere. And that's why uh, IDET became a valuable organization because they had teams that were trained to do those things. You had your first team that would test to see if the portal was even safe to walk through. Then they would have a team that would go in and make first contact. And then they would have their teams that would go in and actually do stuff. So if you just walked into any old world randomly, you could get yourself in a world of hurt because you didn't know what you were walking into. You did, had no idea what you were going to encounter. You're wearing the wrong clothes or acting the wrong way. You had the whole society against you because you were either the witch or the spy or, or, or whatever. And that's just with regular people. I mean, you could walk into a hell. You could walk into, into a dino world where there are no people and there are just nothing but dinosaurs running around. And you get yourself killed really quick that way. We got slowed down by that process, which was realistic. I mean, we, we really actually appreciated that. With people just going into worlds not knowing, you not only have to deal with cultures or hells, you have to deal with the portals themselves. You may have that problem portal. And it does bring the question up in this regard. You're walking into something. You have no idea what it is. It could be mechanically wrong. It could be culturally wrong. It could be environmentally wrong. And it kind of makes you wonder what is possessing me to do this, considering what could possibly happen? Wait a minute, why am I doing this again? It's just something, as you've been saying this, Blake, so it just came to mind just now, and the person's looking around like, you want me to do what? Yeah. <laughs> you need to listen to our last episode, Jay, because we talked about compensation. What are we going to give the Fringeworthy Explorers so they're willing <laughs> to come back a second time? That also establishes that Earth that has the Prime Portal on it is in trouble and is looking for things to resolve its problems. I think it works a lot better if you have that kind of a slow boil tension. This is all well and good. We're taking our time. We're trying to be careful, but our world is heading toward a crisis of one kind or another. We need people out there finding some stuff to help us. That is actually where quintessential sci-fi exists. I mean, that's that's what Frenchworthy is. It's quintessential sci-fi. And when we play in these terms, we are reenacting Asimov and Ivan and Heinlein. This is classic sci-fi at its best. You're throwing in a human condition, a not just, oh, this is what might be, but you also have the core of certain fundamental human values. That, that element that Blix mentioned, confronting different cultures and showing up with the wrong clothes, speaking the wrong language and dealing with it. To me, that sort of sounds like fun. And so that's part of what I was kind of looking at is seeing if I could set up believable alternative cultures and then having the PCs interact with them on their own terms and see if they could fake their way through that kind of first contact without provoking a hail of bullets. Because the teams are out there on their own with just what they have in their hands and on their backs, they got to think on their feet. It brings out the best in these people that are doing this because it's them. They have no one to rely on. Their world may be, you know, hundreds of miles away. Whatever they have in their pockets, okay, this is what I'm going to have to do. Jay, you brought up a good point there. I could see both a plus and minus to your teams. Since one player was actually playing all the characters on the team, there wasn't any dissension amongst the ranks. On the other hand, you had what I refer to as a brain drain, which is that six people sitting around a table can come up with more ideas than one person with six characters. That is absolutely correct. I think uh, in that mode, 
a, uh, a group of, of first in folks, a group of explorers, would be more fun to play as a group of players rather than as one player. But at the time, I had the one player, and that's who I had. So that's who I went with. And we admire you for that. So are you working on fixing that situation, or are you still are you stuck with, with this one player? I still currently have the one player. We switched to a fantasy role-playing game because he did not like the premise behind Springeworthy, but I did tell him that the fantasy role-playing world he's on is actually one of the notes in my Springeworthy game. But he knows now if he's listening to this podcast. <laughs> or I can edit that out. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> all right. And that's fine, too, because any world that you can create can be a fringe-worthy world. It's completely cross-genre. You can play a game world in which all the characters are just on the world, and they're just normal to the world, and it's the same regular campaign. And then if you ever want to spice it up, hey, look in that cave. What is that strange thing with a halo around it? You can see that? He says, yeah. And all of a sudden, you have some people that are fringe-worthy, and they can go on and do something else. We've been playing Savage Worlds, and we've been playing the classic pulp setting. It's 1937, and we've been playing this for months and months, and we decided, you know, Frenchworthy is being developed for, for Savage Worlds, and we were like, well, we want to play test it, so we just threw a portal in there. It's that easy. Next thing you know, you're a Frenchworthy character. You know? One of the things I really like about the Frenchworthy setup, I've done an alternate universes type of campaign before with an earlier superhero game. But what I used was I used basically a variation of the infinite hallways thing, only a uh, chaotic one, a, a bad one where it was hard to navigate through. So the characters never knew which world they were going to get. However, one of the things that really turned me on about Fringeworthy is that the relationship between the different worlds is relatively consistent. It's up through this portal, drive up that road, turn to your left, drive down that road, turn to your left, drive down that road a little bit, then take the fourth gate on your left. And you know where you are relative to the other worlds and the, and the other situations. I really was cranked up about that when I, when I realized what I was looking at there. I thought that was a lot of fun. Were you planning to include, say, the Victorians and the other fringe-using races in your campaign? Those were going to be uh, people to talk about and add later. What I wanted to do was set up a long-term plot where we uncovered the Turmelard versus Meller War and began to understand just how bad that was by the time the PCs had relatively explored all 12 nodes I had and started working on unlocking the left or right hard lockdown side. Once they went through that, then they would find an anti-Meller coalition in action and we'd have another meta plot about whether or not they wanted to join that or whether there were issues they found were not really enticing about that. Sounds like a plan. It's just too bad you didn't get a chance to do it, but you still got all the work done. Folks, if you're in the Spokane area, you know folks in the Spokane area, Jay's looking to run a game. That's right. I think, Jay, you've shown a great deal of creativity and hanging in there, and those are all great qualities for a GM. You haven't been adequately rewarded for all your hard work. So I really hope that some other players will show up and, and contact you, hopefully who are listening to this broadcast, and say, hey, we want to play. And maybe you can play Fringeworthy over uh, Skype, too. With a couple of webcams, you can play almost as if you're at the table. I do that myself. Every, every two weeks, we run our Fringeworthy game. That would be really lovely, and hopefully we can work something out. And thank you for inviting me to play along on the podcast this week. This is fun. 
Jay, I want to say that uh, we talked about having you come on the show, and I know Bruce, John, and I are very, very much fans of what you were doing. We really loved you know, the emails, just everything that you did with this. It's a shame. It's a shame I couldn't have joined your game because I, I would have had a really good time with that. The drive to Spokane is a bit too much for me. I actually live on the other side of the Cascades. I live near Seattle. Six-hour drive there and six-hour drive back be a bit too much. Yeah, but, but since you're in the same time zone, it would be really easy for you to Skype. That's true. Yes. Yeah. I am about two inches off my chair right now. Yeah. So I have a good time with this. Maybe we can get together and discuss doing a Skype game okay. later on. Because, Jay, you do have very interesting ideas, the route that you did take. It didn't happen to work out, but experience is a fantastic teacher. I've been game mastering for 30 years, and you learn sometimes from things that don't quite work out. But recycle the ideas, because you may have had ideas which may work with whoever else you can gather. I've had a number of campaigns that didn't work out. Sometimes it was just that the the kind of game I wanted to run wasn't the kind of game the players wanted to run. And that happens. Yep. Uh, having good conversation with your players ahead of time as to what the expectations were. I, I didn't do that. I was kind of like, okay, this is the game I'm running. Would you guys like to play? Oh, yeah, we'll give it a try. And then about two sessions into it, they're like, uh, no, this isn't what we're into. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. And that was it. And I was sad because I wanted them to play the game. But at the same time is that I realize now that I wasn't communicating effectively with them. Any closing things you want to say about your campaign uh, to share with the rest of us? Good ideas are where you find them. There is no plagiarism at the gaming table. If any of this works for you, grab it and run. All said. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. Remember, my show is the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern on www.dementiaradio.org. It's a comedy music show, and I do a weekly piece on it every around 8 30 or so called the RPG report. So I talk for about 10 minutes about some role-playing publication that's out and I review it and I offer my own viewpoints like I have here on this show, just for the gamers that listen to the show. It's comedy music. It's me and my friends. We sit and I play music and we shoot the breeze for about an hour. Listen in. If you want to hear more of me, be warned. On that show, I am not pod safe. <laughs> I'll leave it at that.
United States license. No commercial distribution or derivative works are allowed. You must fully attribute this work to TriTag Games. This podcast is solely